Tonight's talk is on that happy subject, depression, uh, mm -hmm. understanding it from a variety of angles. And, um, the goal is to really uh, familiarize us with what um, the different types of depression are, what causes it, uh, how it can be treated, Buddhist insights and tools that can alleviate depression. So. Uh, to any degree that you experience yourself or know others, um, you could of course be of help for them. And simply understanding it, in my experience, is of many benefits. So, um, one of the first issues that comes up is a lot of people misuse the word depression. They will say they're depressed uh, during, as a matter of course, just for the word, generally when the word sad would do or dispirited. Um, now there is uh, a kind of depression known as situational depression which happens after a significant setback in life like a breakup, loss of a job, loss of a loved one and um, in such cases uh, extended periods of crying, sadness, guilt, or lack of motivation is very common and actually very, very appropriate. Uh, there's a lot of studies started by the great John Bowlby in the 1940s with children uh, of England during the bombing by the, the Germans at that time. And Bowlby discovered that when children were separated from their mothers, if they didn't grieve, uh, the separation, they wouldn't accept the fact that they had been, in essence, separated from their mothers and wouldn't then be able to go on to make new, caring, open, substantial connections with other caretakers that were available. And what he determined is that grief, after a significant loss, the sadness, the sorrow, the, the crying, is the way that our brain, especially the right hemisphere, essentially erases all the inner working models that sort of guide our in emotional attachments that we have. And it's through grieving that we, in essence, wipe the slate clean and open the mind up to new possibilities. When we don't grieve after losses, what happens is we tend to go into states of numbing denial where we don't move on and don't open up to new connections with people. So it, it plays a very important and healthy role in situations. So then the question might be, well, how do I determine what a healthy form of grieving or sadness is from a chronic disorder, which is the hallmark of depression? And... Uh, it's a very good question, and there are ways that any qualified uh, person would help you evaluate that. The first is that um, if you have dystemia, that's a mild general dissatisfaction with your life, and that will last and will not abate. Now, if you have situational depression after a loss that's healthy, it will reach a peak or a plateau, and then gradually, hopefully, you'll open to other people, you'll make 
uh, you'll express your sorrow and through making new connections you'll find a holding container that will allow you to uh, be with the grief but not have it uh, in essence wind up in something we'll call decompensation and I'll go through what that is in a moment so dystemia is though something that has no original uh, situation or calamity it's just an overall lasting feeling that life is unsatisfactory and then it can turn into atypical depression if on top of that general feeling of uh, a low mood there's a sense of heaviness and inability to feel motivated in life and inability to feel pleasure now atypical depression is not major depression in the sense that people can still show up to work. They don't fall apart in terms of they start decompensating, and I'll explain what that means. They uh, can have happy times in their life when people will tell them a joke or they, they find they're in a new relationship or they get compliment, complimented. They can feel good. So you can have a typical depression and be at times alleviated from it. You'll know that it's atypical if it lasts for, for an extremely long period of time. The dominant mood you feel as a kind of default setting is one of sadness, heaviness, lack of motivation, a feeling of low self-esteem. But again, you'll be able to show up for work You'll dress, you'll bathe, you'll have a general sense of appetite. You might gain a little weight, but that's about it. Now, these chronic mood disorders become major depression when we start to see what's known as decompensation. What's that? Uh, it's the term for when people basically start falling apart. Uh, in essence, stop uh, eating, stop showering, insomnia for many days in a row, uh, inability to uh, go to work because it's too triggering, uh, inability to show up for obligations, uh, complete withdrawal from human interactions, hiding. So when you start to see this in yourself or a friend, then you know that somebody who's crossed over from the lighter forms of chronic mood disorders like uh, dystemia to something that immediately needs treatment. And again, the sign that something needs treatment is decompensation. Uh, generally, it'll be the symptoms will have lasted for at least two weeks. You'll see severe changes in appetite. Somebody will either stop eating or they'll be completely binge eating for, to try to desperately curtail the feelings. They will have a tendency to um, uh, literally stop changing their clothes, showering. You'll notice that if it's a guy, he'll start you know, having a beard, uh, if he doesn't normally have a beard, that is. And you'll start seeing signs of change of appearance that are quite marked. Um, 
the insomnia that can happen will lead to bags under the eyes, a hollowness, a sense of there'll be maybe a, a complete emotional shutdown where uh, jokes will not be understood. Uh, you're, essentially, it's like you're talking to somebody in a trance. So those are the signs to look out for. The thing that makes the difference between somebody who will have a situational depression that's completely uh, healthy and somebody who might have a major depression, generally the answers will be found in one out of two places. They'll either have had in early childhood a really abusive or traumatic event. Uh, a caretaker who was frightening, who was physically violent, prone to rage, or a caretaker who suddenly disappeared. In those cases, it's very likely that any subsequent event in life that's disappointing, like the death of somebody or an abandonment in a relationship, can trigger a major depressive episode. The second thing is some people have what's known as genetic predispositions, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Genetic predispositions are essentially mean we don't have the right mix of neurotransmitters to help us regulate our thoughts and feelings in an optimal way. So if there's three basic kinds of depression. The first revolves around what's known as anhedonia, which is fatigue, inability to motivate, lethargy, uh, inability to make decisions, uh, completely feeling that all goals are beyond reach, and um, really a marked lack of pleasure in life. And what this means is uh, very often there is not enough dopamine present in the brain, which is the brain's reward neurotransmitter. And so if you show up to a clinic with these symptoms, the first thing to expect is to go on Wellbutrin, which is by and large a very safe drug that's not too particularly, everybody pretty much tolerates it pretty well, and it's considered to be very safe. So safe, in fact, it's widely uh, dispersed for people who are giving up smoking, because one of the, the states that kicks in in that is a very similar state to anhedonia. So, um, the second kind is a depression that revolves around anxiety. Spiraling thoughts, insomnia, inability to stop the brain from thinking. Generally the thoughts are either very anxious, they can create panic attacks. It's uh, basically um, depression that overlaps with what's known as generalized anxiety disorder and there's no real way to separate the two. So if you go to a clinic with those symptoms, the exact opposite of anhedonia, you won't be able to sleep, you won't want to stay in bed, you'll be uh, agitated, frightened, anxious, you'll, be, uh, you'll, be, you'll find yourself having panic attacks, and the first line of treatment would be uh, SSRI, which would be something along the lines of, or an SSNI. So something along the lines of Lexapro or Cymbalta or Fexor, Venlafaxine, etc. Now, um, 
if you're in a really bad state, you'll probably begin at a benzodiazepine, which would be a bridge drug, which would keep you going for about a month until the antidepressants kick in. Generally, if people don't get addicted to them, they're a very good idea because they stop panic attacks and they will stop suicidal ideations. And one of the hallmarks of this type of depression is suicidal ideations, outright despair. Now, the third type of depression is bipolar. And that's obviously a different brand in that people sometimes feel great, grandiose feelings of self-esteem. They feel empowered. They can do anything. For periods of time, they'll have a brain that feels like they only need two or three hours of sleep and they'll claim that they're fully rested. They'll be prone to binge on intoxicants. They'll be very, very confident that their latest idea is the greatest idea ever. They will quickly quit their job and decide they want to move to New Hampshire to teach yoga even though they don't know how to do yoga talking from somebody I know, uh, they will uh, suddenly make drastic life changes. They are going to be very, very talkative, uh, yet then those episodes will then cyclically be displaced by times of anhedonia, where they won't be able to get out of bed, they won't be able to withdraw from the world, they won't be seen and generally the, these episodes will often be triggered when the plans that they've hastily constructed during the manic part of the episodes go awry. So those are the three basic kinds and if you uh, showed up with bipolar you'd probably be put on a first line which would be lithium, risperdal, seroquel and then second line um, anticonvulsants like uh, uh, Lamictal, Neurontin, etc. So uh, those are off-brand treatments. So the good news is that if you show up, you, you get a good psychiatrist, and you also avail yourself of psychological tools, which would be available to you in any Buddhist center or any talk therapy, the two combinations of psychopharmaceutical and psychological tools would give you an 80% chance of complete uh, remission and ultimate uh, successful being able to manage the symptoms of depression. If you are very against pharmaceuticals and you only allow yourself to use talk therapy, the chances of it working or meditation working alone are about 40%. So you have your chances of a successful treatment. The same time, if you decide that talk therapy or Buddhist uh, practice is a waste of time and you just want to use pharmaceuticals to treat it, likewise, your chance of success plummets to 40%. So every study shows that a multi-pronged approach to working with depression is the best way to go. Um, fortunately, the, very often the medication side only needs to be enacted from six months to a year before it can be gradually stepped off of. Generally though, keeping a healthy uh, psychologically grounded process in place is very useful. So 
what are the causes of depression that you might find if you go to a talk therapist or if you work with um, somebody, for instance, such as myself. Not that I'm advertising myself because actually right now I'm completely booked up. But the types of uh, things you might encounter are, uh, there's a whole bunch of different theories of what causes depression and some of them are pretty interesting, so I'll mention a few. Um, Melanie Klein said that depression is caused by an anger somebody felt towards a caretaker that they felt they didn't have the right to feel and the guilt combined with repressing the anger creates a sense of a um, repressed feelings of distress which eventually lead to the sense of a bad self that needs to be withdrawn from the world. But in essence, she was following Freud's idea that depression is anger turned inwards. Freud said, too, that anger towards a mother or a father that we don't feel the right to express, hold, and be with generally gets turned against the self and and internalized. Now, a second guy, Edward Bibring, in the 1950s, he came up with a completely different philosophy, which is that Uh, Depression stems from the tension between societal expectations of us, the beliefs of what we should attain in life that are inculcated by our parents and the world around us, and what we are actually capable of. And he said the greater the discrepancy between the beliefs of what we should be doing, like I should be a doctor or a lawyer, but uh, in fact I'm just here a lonely Dharma teacher, that... uh, that could cause a discrepancy, which in his view would create a possibility of depression. Um, Edith Jacobson, one of my heroes, she created a theory that um, depression is essentially an introjection of a shaming parent. Literally, we introject into our minds and create uh, the abusive parent's voice that as our, in our adult life as a major part of our thoughts that we can't distinguish from our own natural thinking basically taunts, humiliates, judges us and shames us into feeling that we are less than. It's a very elegant theory in its simplicity. It basically, uh, the idea of introjecting a parent's voice can uh, create all kinds of problems because an introjected voice seems like just another thought that you can argue or reason with, but if you've interjected the voice of the parent in your your head, you actually can't argue with it. It's a tape recording. They're not actually there. And so all you're doing is replaying their negative, shaming, rejecting words. So uh, that's one theory. Silvio already... uh, I'm sure I'm pronouncing his name wrong, but he came up with a very prominent theory, which is depressed people tend to live their lives for other people. And when the other people they live their lives for become rejecting or disappointed, then a depressive episode will follow. And so he found that, for instance, people who have their lives imbalanced and tend to want to please somebody, a mother, a father, a sibling, a lover, that sets us up for depressive episodes because very often we will unconsciously choose people who can't be pleased, who aren't warm, who aren't affectionate. 
Finally, the last theory is the basic attachment theory that in early childhood, a disrupted attachment with a caretaker sets us up so that any other uh, disconnections, poor events, failures, business shutdowns are all seen through the light of that abandonment experience. And we create an inner working model where we expect to be shunned, disappointed, abandoned, not treated well by the world. And that's set up in childhood. And perhaps the saddest thing about the attachment view is that in childhood, the child believes that it is the fault why the parent is shaming or, or why the, the connection has been severed with the parent. The child blames itself. And so in adult life, whenever a disappointing event happens, we will do the same. We'll blame ourselves, even though very often we'll get fired from a job for no reason of our own, we'll get dumped from a relationship for no reason of our own, we'll get uh, whatever, that, that uh, self-blaming tendency will come along. So finally, last part of the talk is uh, Buddhist insights and how they're very helpful. Um, the Buddhist insight into depression is that it is a form of what's called vibana, vibhavatana. Vibhavatana is one of the three kinds of craving for life to be different. There's basic old kamatana, which is simply craving for pleasures, sensual pleasures, things that taste, smell, feel good. Then there's Bawatana, which is craving for new states. People who are constantly caught up in self-improvement regimes are in what's known as Bawatana. People who always think, yeah, I've got to get that degree, and when I pick up this license and that ability, and when I go to school, then I'll be perfect. Then I'll be, you know, the, the, the real me that I should be. But depression is synonymous with Vibawatana, which is a desire to get rid of the self that we've constructed. It works a little bit like this. Um, all of our experiences as human beings are constantly changing. We live in minds that are essentially like rivers with flowing impressions and thoughts and sensations. It's a constant change. And so from a Buddhist perspective, it's very problematic to point at any single experience and say, that's who I am, that's my identity. Because the nature of the mind is actually constant flow and change. But what happens is sometimes people will point to things that are really good and lovable and uh, their skills and they'll say, that's who I am. And all the rest doesn't count, it's not me. It's just the times when I'm funny and people like me and I feel smart, that's who I am. And such people set themselves up for narcissistic personality disorders or for grandiosity. But on the other hand, there are people who do the exact opposite, who um, point to the most negative attributes of their lives that they experience. Oh, that time I wasn't funny, that time people didn't like me, that time at work people didn't like my ideas. And they'll pick, pinpoint every negative experience they have and they'll put a net around it or a circle around it and they'll say, that's who I am, that's my identity. And that action 
of turning the most negative experiences into a sense of self, a sense of this is who I am really, then creates the, 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 the depression. Because the act of turning these negative attributes into an identity makes us feel stuck and makes us feel this underlying aversion. And interestingly enough, from this Buddhist perspective, it's not so much the negative things that cause the depression. It's the act of saying, this is who I am, and highlighting just our faults, and highlighting our setbacks that creates the depression. It's the, the creating what is called sakaya didi, a, a view of this is who I am. That's the culprit from a Buddhist perspective, not the actual symptoms themselves. If I'm depressed and I just feel the sluggishness, feel the tiredness, feel the lack of motivation, but I don't turn it into an identity story that then makes me feel trapped, if I don't do that, then I won't withdraw from you. I won't hide from the world. I'll feel more capable of talking about the symptoms and, and I'll be able to find greater alleviation. But the moment I start to say, no, this is me, who I really am, this feeling of lack of inspiration, this fatigue, this tiredness, this lack of joy, this is Josh's true nature, then what I'll do is I'll pull away because I'll feel trapped and stuck and condemned to that experience and I won't even bother trying to address it and I'll hide it from you and that will worsen the experience. So very much a, a key part of the Buddhist approach to depression is to undermine the identity building process. The way it does it is through the the process of what's known as insight, which is where we turn towards the very symptoms that are causing distress, the feelings of sadness, heaviness, anxiety, the feelings of despair, the thoughts of outright anger, or even the suicidal ideations. And rather than get caught in the normal depressive tendency, which is to cling to the negative ones and to push away anything that is positive or, or could be seen as contradictive. Instead, to simply experience those sensations as stuff that arises and passes, that is not inherently constitutive of a self or an identity. So we're not getting rid of the symptoms as much as we're changing the way we relate to the symptoms of depression. That's very important. The moment you remove the sense of this is who I am, this is me, then you can experience situational sadness, experience grief, experience disappointment without conflating it into something that is essentially stuck. Now, another thing that's really interesting is that Buddhism creates a... Um, a way of normalizing depression, by which I mean in the Western world, depression is very stigmatized because it interferes with people's ability to function, with people's ability to feel gratified by material pleasures, with people's ability to feel you know, caught up in the acquisition game and being happy consumers and all that. It's considered to be a real 
deeply threatening state. But from the Buddhist perspective, the core um, moment in the spiritual journey is called Nibida, which is actually disenchantment with essentially capitalism and essentially materialism. It's a state of literally looking around and seeing, holy shit, I've been working in this job I hate. I've been chasing after all this shit that really is not going to make me happy. What's the fucking point? And then when we reach that stage, yes, there might well be times of depression, despair, which are synonymous with the disenchantment of Nibida. Now, the Buddha also said, though, that if we don't use that dispirited moment of, of oh my, I'm, I've been barking up the wrong tree all my life, if we don't use that to actually change and develop a spiritual path, then we'll get stuck in the hindrances of tiredness, we'll get stuck in the hindrances of restlessness. So Udaka and Mida will be stuck in, and they'll become hindrances, they won't help us on the journey. But if we use the depressive episode to push us to make significant life changes where we seek work that's meaningful, where we take care of ourselves, where we no longer chase after uh, love from unloving people, care from uncaring people. If we use the depressive events to actually create motivation in our lives to make the significant changes, then instead of being something that is um, a negative, it's actually a portal to the most significant positive change in our life. I'll conclude that when I was uh, in 2001, 9-11, I uh, uh, had a major depressive acute episode required going to hospitals and going on antidepressants. And uh, the good news is that I used that as the real spur to leave the advertising industry to get training as a Buddhist teacher to live an authentic life. And it's because of that that I, uh, I have the life that I have now, which to me, well, I make a fraction of the money that I did, but I love it. So I don't view the depressive episode as the worst thing that ever happened to me, though at the time I did. Now I view it as like the, the real moment, the the sort of focal point where everything, my perspective on life, my perspective on what brings me happiness, my perspective on what I should be doing with my life changed. And so I'm grateful for it. So I hope that in some way there was something of value in 